President Biden has released a video declaring his run for a second term, setting up a possible rematch with former President Donald Trump. It's Tuesday, April 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up... Heavy looting and armed robberies, organized crime, absolute absence of uh, any police force. We hear from the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. about a temporary ceasefire in Sudan and the dangers civilians face as they attempt to evacuate. Also, a look at the legacy former Fox News host Tucker Carlson leaves behind as the company ousts him from the network this kind of dreck that you would normally only see on far-right forums and online spaces had a primetime audience on cable news every night. Plus, Uber and Lyft drivers say the apps themselves cause wage discrimination. Mostly cloudy with a chance of rain today in the upper 50s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden is asking for four more years in office. The president has made his re-election bid official this morning in a video announcement. NPR's Scott Detrow has more. Biden's re-election announcement mirrors many of the same themes he ran on in 2020, a bid launched four years ago today. Biden also seeks to contrast himself with former President Donald Trump, who's also running again, as well as other so-called MAGA Republicans, warning about their policies. Dictating what health care decisions women can make, banning books and telling people who they can love, all while making it more difficult for you to be able to vote. Drawing a contrast with Republicans will be key for Biden's bid, as most polls show him with relatively low approval ratings. Many voters have said they're worried about his age. Biden is 80 now and would be 86 at the end of a second term. Scott Detrow, NPR News, Washington. In Sudan, a three-day truce is underway between two battling military forces. The World Health Organization estimates nearly 460 people have been killed in the fighting. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports previous Sudanese ceasefire efforts have collapsed. Both the army and the paramilitary rapid support forces have announced yet another ceasefire to fighting which erupted in Khartoum and other parts of Sudan earlier this month. The U.S. government again helped broker the agreement. Previous attempts have failed to hold, but reports of reduced fighting have given a window for several countries to evacuate their citizens. The United States has so far only evacuated its diplomats and their dependents, leaving 16,000 registered Americans to leave on their own, with some guidance from government officials. Several thousands of Sudanese people are fleeing Khartoum and the most besieged areas of fighting in the country that have been destroyed by conflict between the two military factions. Emmanuel Akimwotu, NPR News, Lagos. Fox News says it has mutually parted ways with popular personality Tucker Carlson. This comes a week after Fox settled a defamation suit with Dominion Voting Systems over lies repeatedly told about its voting machines. NPR's David Folkenflik says Carlson's departure is apparently related to another case. Tucker Carlson is the focus of a separate but related lawsuit from a former producer who alleged his uh, workplace was defined by sexism and bigotry. And it appears that exchanges captured by Fox News in, in reviewing evidence for this case that still hasn't seen the light of day fully uh, really uh, is related to those allegations. That is, it, it echoes those concerns raised by the former producer, Abby Grossberg. Some of that evidence has already made to light, and it's not pretty. NPR's David Folkenflik reporting. Separately, CNN announced yesterday that morning show host Don Lemon is out. He had recently returned to the air after making sexist and ageist remarks about Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new poll is shedding light on just how concerned parents of Boston Public School students are when it comes to the safety and emotional health of their children. WBUR's Samuela Petricelli has more. The survey by the Mass Inc. polling group shows two out of three parents are concerned about their child's physical safety in school. Three out of four respondents say they are in favor of police officers and metal detectors in city schools. Suleika Soto, a Boston parent with two kids, hopes if the school system does add officers, it does so after speaking with the community. I would hope that they would engage parents in that. Because as we could see, right, parents have their thoughts, but they also feel like they're not engaged enough. The poll also found three-quarters of Boston parents gave their child's school an A or B grade, just below the statewide average. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samuela Petricelli. Massachusetts Governor Moore Healy says she will compel senior managers at the T to work in Boston and live near the transit system they run. Healy made the promise after reporting from the Boston Globe revealed some high-level managers work hundreds of miles away from areas serviced by the T. The agency has allowed remote work since the pandemic, but Healy says her office is already telling some managers they must work in the city at least three days a week. A former Harvard Neiman fellow is facing espionage charges from the Chinese government. Family members of 61-year-old Dong Yuyu say the journalist was having lunch with a Japanese diplomat in Beijing last February when both were arrested. The diplomat was later freed. Ian Johnson of the Council on Foreign Relations was a Neiman fellow with Yuyu. He says Yuyu was frequently critical of the Chinese government. I think they probably thought, here's a chance to get rid of this guy who anyways was a a problem for us and also to make a statement to other journalists. And I think this is probably one of the deeper reasons for his detention, a statement to other journalists that you shouldn't have ties with foreigners. Espionage carries a 10-year prison sentence in China. The Massachusetts Democratic Party has a new leader. Steve Kerrigan was elected to the post last night. Kerrigan currently serves as president and CEO of Kennedy Community Health Center. He also ran for lieutenant governor in 2014. He takes over for Gus Bickford, who served as the state party chair since 2016. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. The Red Sox lost their series opener in Baltimore last night. They fell to the Orioles 5-4. to The teams play again this evening. Meanwhile, the Celtics are back at the Garden tonight. They'll take on the Atlanta Hawks in Game 5 of the playoff series. We'll start this morning off with some patchy fog. That'll turn to partly cloudy skies after a few hours. Then temperatures rise to the mid-50s. There's a slight chance of rain after about 2 p.m. More rain possible before about 7 p.m. Then mostly cloudy with more patchy fog overnight night as temperatures fall to the low 40s. Tomorrow, another round of fog and a slight chance of afternoon showers, otherwise mostly sunny with a high near 59 degrees. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 7.07. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez at KUER in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I'm Stephen Skeep in Washington, in Sudan, where one military force has turned against another, leading to combat in the streets. The leaders have agreed to a three-day truce. 
This may give space for some Sudanese and others to flee or at least find a doctor. Dr. Abdul Masad Doka has been trying to work in Khartoum. It's becoming increasingly difficult because um, I believe some of the forces that are involved in the conflict are kidnapping um, doctors. This is a recent thing that has happened in the last 24 hours. I believe they're taking them to makeshift hospitals and having them treat their forces under gun control. Because he's worried about being kidnapped, patients come to him. Right now, we are only able to work within the parameters of our neighborhoods. And, and I'm literally, in some cases, having patients come to my house and, and operating uh, on them. I'm literally having patients who are within the vicinity of, uh, of where I live reach me because I, uh, the abduction and the kidnapping thing is, uh, is a real threat. One perspective from Khartoum. The diplomats who monitor all this and try to do something if they can include Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the United States Ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Steve. Okay. Happy to be here. I was trying to update myself. I looked up Khartoum ceasefire, and the first article that came up was about a failed ceasefire from several days ago. Could this one be any better? Uh, we're hoping uh, this is, is better. As you know, uh, Secretary Blinken and others negotiated a 72-hour ceasefire. But what we really are working toward is getting uh, both parties to uh, agree to uh, implement a sustained nationwide ceasefire and go back to, to the negotiating table. The fact that Secretary Blinken and others were involved, maybe get to this next question. U.S. diplomats have had to shut down the embassy temporarily. They're getting out of there. Yesterday, we had Timothy Carney on the program, former U.S. ambassador to Sudan, who said it was a mistake for U.S. diplomats to leave Sudan in the 1990s. And he said this time, quote, there had better be some diplomats who stayed in order to do what needs to be done. Do you have people on the ground who can communicate and make a difference? Look, we're going to continue our intense efforts uh, at senior levels to engage with uh, both parties and for push them to uh, to the negotiating table. This is just a temporary uh, suspension of uh, operations, and we fully intend to resume those operations as soon as it's safe for us to do so. Maybe, I mean, maybe. we're committed to, to Sudan. We were committed when Ambassador Carney was uh, evacuated back in 1996 and was working from Nairobi and continuing uh, to engage with uh, with the parties. Maybe, so we maybe, will continue to maybe, do that. Maybe you wouldn't want to say whether somebody is exactly on the ground or not, but do you have uh, the every number you can you, you need? You can reach anybody you need to reach to do what you need to we do. We can reach anyone we need to reach, and uh, we have been doing that. Give me a picture of how many U.S. citizens want out of the country. We've seen the number of 16,000. I would presume that some people choose to stay. How many people want out and what can you do for them? You know, I don't know the exact number who have expressed an interest in uh, leaving, but we're committed to uh, supporting those who want to leave. The president uh, has uh, directed uh, our uh, security and, and other forces to provide intel and, and overhead. Uh, overhead surveillance. Uh, there have been some overland convoys that we provided assistance to, but people have to be able to do that in safety. Uh, and we're encouraging them to uh, make sure that the situation is safe before they attempt any uh, efforts to, uh, to depart. I'm interested when you say overhead surveillance. What exactly do you mean by that? 
you know, we're watching the situation on the ground uh, as we did during uh, the evacuation of a thousand people by the United Nations yesterday uh, to make sure that if we see any danger, uh, we can advise them of what we're seeing. Are U.S. military forces in position to act if there were some emergency that called for that? I can't uh, uh, address that, but we're certainly monitoring the situation very closely. Ambassador, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much for the update this morning. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Steve, and anytime. Linda Thomas-Greenfield is the United States Ambassador to the United Nations. If Congress does not raise the debt limit soon, the U.S. risks defaulting on the national debt, which could cripple the economy. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy last week unveiled a plan that would raise the debt ceiling for about a year while at the same time repealing large parts of the Biden administration's agenda. The president is not negotiating on this, insisting Congress should increase the limit with no conditions. For more, we're joined by Republican Congressman Dusty Johnson of South Dakota. He's the chairman of the Republican Main Street Caucus. Congressman, increasing the debt limit is about paying the government's bills that are due right now. Why would you try to negotiate over paying the bills Congress already ran up? Well, in part because it's a very regular way of doing business and 2011 of then Vice President Joe Biden negotiated a debt ceiling increase uh, along with some budgetary controls. In 2004, he voted against a debt ceiling increase because it didn't do enough to address spending. So this is very typical. Uh, in fact, the last seven important budgetary controls in our nation's history came about because of debt ceiling negotiations. But can't you negotiate future spending cuts after America's obligations are fulfilled. You certainly can. I would say, though, if you're the family uh, at home and you get a big credit card bill, you've maxed them all out, of course you're going to pay the credit card bill. I mean, we're going to be responsible. But if you just call the credit card company and blindly increase those limits without sitting down at the family kitchen table and having a conversation about future spending, you're missing a huge opportunity. And we're $32 trillion in debt. We are hitting a serious tipping point. Things are much worse than they have been. We cannot give up this opportunity to have the responsible conversation. When you said that, of course, the obligations will be met, are you saying that this will get dealt with and paid for no matter what? We are not going to default on the debt because at some point, President Biden is going to do what he's always done in the past, which is get in the room and negotiate. It seems like in our system of government, the very least we should all be able to do is sit down and talk. We have twin crises. We have uh, runaway spending and we have a looming debt ceiling. The big boys and the big girls need to be willing to step up and tackle both right now. You support the speaker's proposal, obviously. You're, uh, some others in your party don't. Uh, you have a margin of only four votes, I believe. Uh, how will you be able to negotiate with Democrats in the House to get their votes for sure, just to make sure that you don't lose any votes on your side? I don't think we'll have any Democrats in the House on the vote this week. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, President Biden has had a lot of red lines. He's got a lot of stipulations. He won't even come to the room until Republicans pass something out. We're going to do that this week. I have every confidence. But it really, uh, normally when Congress votes, it's an attempt to govern. Uh, Joe Biden uh, won't let us do that. Instead, he's putting this stipulation that we pass something out before he even starts to talk. And so this is, I think, more about an opening negotiation position than it is about an actual attempt to, uh, you know, pass a bill through the Senate uh, for right now for this week. 
And so I don't expect we'll have a lot of Democrats help us with that opening position. Congressman, one more thing, about 30 seconds. You have called the national debt in the past a clear and present danger to the United States of America. Can you explain that? Yeah, we are uh, at a point where it is going to crowd out uh, all of the virtuous spending that so much of us support. In the last decade, we spent $3 trillion just on interest on the debt. Now, that was a lot. No no veteran got a new knee for that. No, no school kid got a, a new school or got a school lunch for that. But in the next 10 years, we won't spend just $3 trillion on interest on the debt. We will spend $10 trillion on interest on the debt. That is going to crowd out all of the spending that we need to be a healthy and focused country and to deal with the threats that face us. We have got to get our act together. That's Republican Congressman Dusty Johnson of South Dakota. Congressman, thank you very much. Very good bet. The state of Wyoming now has a clinic that provides surgical abortions, the only one in the state. Its opening was delayed for nearly a year after it was torched by an arsonist. Wyoming Public Radio's Camila Kudelska reports. Julie Burkhart wanted to open Wellspring Health Access Clinic because a year ago, there was only one place in Wyoming for people to get abortions. She says the arson caused fear and trauma to the staff. We had to spend a lot of time talking about what this means, how people feel about an attack like this on the clinic where they're going to be working and providing care. But Burkhardt says none of the staff decided to quit. The state's only other abortion provider offers medication abortions only. So Wellspring is now the sole clinic in the state to provide surgical abortions. People are calling us, messaging us. It's very clear. People want to make appointments and they want to come to our clinic for care. Wyoming passed an abortion ban in March, but a judge put it on hold temporarily pending a decision by state courts. The new clinic is located in Casper. Bruce Nell is the mayor. We encourage all taxpaying entities to be able to have a place to operate, own and operate and flourish. And, you know, if the demand is there in our community and, you know, their bottom line is up to them. But Nell is being criticized after he responded to an article about the clinic's opening using his personal Facebook account with an animation of a man dancing around a fire. I googled hellfire and that's what came up. This in no way, in no way, no how was ever meant to incite any violence or any further destruction of their clinic. Wyoming Right to Life said they are devastated that the number of abortion providers here has doubled and declined further comment. For NPR News, I'm Camila Kodalska. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in about four minutes on Morning Edition, as Israel marks the 75th anniversary of its founding, many of its citizens are openly debating whether their country can be a Jewish state and a democracy. Then at 7.40, why some say rideshare apps like Uber and Lyft promote wage discrimination. It's 7.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. 
Is social media causing a decline in teenage mental health? Smartphones were used by the majority of Americans around 2012, and that's the same time loneliness increases. That's very suspicious. Researchers are now finding clearer links between social media use and anxiety and depression. I'm Elsa Chang. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Partly sunny with a high near 55 today. There's a chance of scattered showers around about 2 p.m. More showers possible in the early evening. Then it'll be mostly cloudy with a low around 40. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high of 54. Right now it's 47 degrees in Boston at 720. Mornings are dark this time of year, and the news can feel that way too. Morning Edition from NPR News helps keep you informed, not overwhelmed. Listen for a brighter start to your day. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the University at Buffalo, where researchers are developing new technology for people to take control of their health, like an earbud-based system that can detect common ear ailments. Buffalo.edu NPR. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Later this week, Israel marks its 75th Independence Day, and the country is in turmoil. It has its most ultra-nationalist religious government ever, and street protests have exposed deep internal divisions. Even after 75 years, there is no consensus over what kind of country Israel should be. NPR's Daniel Estrin brings us a portrait of Israelis reflecting on their future. Israeli protesters marched through a devout Jewish religious neighborhood a few weeks ago wearing hard hats, worried they'd be pelted with eggs. Instead, they were greeted with religious music and engaged in debates. I watch a military veteran tell a young ultra-Orthodox man he shouldn't be exempt from military service that secular Israelis have to perform. The ultra-Orthodox man says, just like the army has special forces, studying Torah is my special contribution. As their country turns 75, Israelis are debating how their country can be a Jewish state and still offer equality for those who are secular or not even Jewish. I visited two families who reflect how even among Jews, the country's identity is unresolved. I met the Carmeli family on their porch in their kibbutz, one of the communal villages founded in Israel's early years by secular Jews. This is, uh, I think it's our next war. It's the independence war for the non-religious people from the religious people. We've been serving them, fighting their wars, having our uh, families or members killed for them. And for what? I'm not uh, happy about this independence day. 
Karine Carmeli works in pharmaceuticals. Her husband's in tech. They and their teenage daughters have been attending street protests against the far-right religious government. It's like a slippery slope. Iran was in the 70s. It was a country like Israel. You see pictures. They were in swimming suits, women in swimming suits on the beach. They don't have it anymore. And it's happening in a blink of an eye that it happens. Many secular Jews see religious populations growing and worry they'll be sidelined. Last month, her husband alone prepared a plan B for the family in case they decide to leave. I just want to show you, you see, this is our new, this is my certificate that I'm a Romanian uh, citizen. Citizen. This is our plan B. You know? This is our plan B. Alon's grandparents survived the Holocaust and fled Europe to Israel. That informs his vision of what Israel should be. It's the place when Jews can be safe, secure, survive, but it's not only for Jews. That's what I'm saying. It's not a very popular uh, statement today because people say the, this is the Jewish country, it's only for Jewish. His kibbutz is surrounded by Arab cities. Palestinian Arab citizens are a fifth of Israel's population. They face widespread discrimination, but he sees them as equals. Today, his kibbutz even has a rare Muslim member. He even says he could see himself voting for an Arab prime minister one day. We walk through their backyard. All the avocado fields here. And right across the fields is Israel's concrete separation wall with the West Bank, where Palestinians are under Israeli occupation. In about a month, Palestinians there will mark Israel's founding as the catastrophe of their mass displacement. They lack independence. You see this wall? This is the whole story of Israel. Why it's not open, why we need all those gates, walls and everything, you know? For me, it's a, it's a sad story, you know? We're staring at the Palestinian city across the wall where in his military days alone laid surveillance infrastructure for Israeli intelligence. He says the solution is not military, it's negotiation. And I'm not sure that we have people skilled enough in Israel who wants even to open their minds speaking about and looking on a situation wide open. Alon Carmeli has a friend in the city of Caesarea who thinks differently, Yaniv Ben-Ami, who does sales for a big tech company. He's been going to synagogue to recite prayers for his mother since she died recently. He's not religious, but he's trying to follow more Jewish traditions. He voted for a religious party, including far-right figures. He says he wishes Israel's far-right government would tone things down, but he also thinks the street protesters are exaggerating. The red lines of each one of us is not that far away from each other. We want a Jewish country. We need to maybe improve it, but it's pretty free. What concerns him is changes in Israel's population, which pose unresolved challenges to Israel's Jewish character. In the military reserves, he apprehended African migrants fleeing to Israel. They're Muslim and Christian. I've arrested roughly 300, 400, 500, I could not remember. What happened is that all of them stayed here, having their own babies, which this is a really a tragedy because their babies who have been born in Israel, have been raised in Israel, and now they speak Hebrew, they're not even aware that they are not Jews. Now, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying that the demography is changing. And he's worried about the young generation of Arab citizens in Israel. I'm trying not to generalize, but it looks like most of it do not accept Israel as Israel. But he does think a Jewish country can embrace its Arab citizens if they're willing to embrace it. If you with us, we with us, because we, have, we want to survive together as a country. 
together. And during the current upheaval, he says he took advice from his rabbi. He's always saying, you know what I did? I stopped listening to the media. The media has been covering the street protests, and it's been reporting on fears of a civil war between Jews in the country, which he says won't happen. After all, he's still friends with Alon Carmeli, even during this politically divided time. If there will be a war tomorrow against Iran, I don't know, what do you think will happen? Alon and me will not fight together against Iran? Of course. This is why we are brothers. Doesn't matter what we think. As the country marks Independence Day, Yaniv Ben-Ami is hanging a lot of Israeli flags on his house. It's his call for unity in Israel. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Kesaria, Israel. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, one day after Fox News fired host Tucker Carlson, we look at how he helped elevate extremist narratives and conspiracy theories to mainstream audiences. It's 729. A quick reminder that the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the WBUR app in your app store today. Funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo, what makes you happy? Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is running for a second term. NPR Scott Detrow says Biden's campaign released a three-minute video this morning making it official. Biden is making the argument that he is someone who has gotten government to work again. He is particularly focused on the Infrastructure Act and and other new laws uh, trying to bring back American manufacturing jobs, particularly computer chips. A lot of this really comes back to the same bet that Biden made in 2020, that in a hyper-politicized culture war climate, he thinks most voters actually in the end just kind of want to see government get things done. Polls have shown Americans remain concerned about Biden's handling of the U.S. economy and his age. At 80 years old, he's the oldest president in U.S. history. Biden would be 86 at the end of a second term. There are reports of gunfire in Sudan's capital despite a 72-hour ceasefire now in effect. This latest truce was brokered by the Biden administration with the help of Saudi Arabia. NPR's Giles Snyder says the Pentagon is standing by for potential evacuations. Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder says the U.S. military is following the State Department's lead, but that two Navy vessels are being put into position to help if needed, to provide medical support or to transport citizens. Ryder says one Navy ship is currently off Sudan's coast and another is being deployed to the area. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi.
Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley are teaming up on an effort to expand free transit programs in the U.S. The pair want to funnel $25 billion into a grant program for state and municipal transit agencies to provide free service. They filed legislation for the plan yesterday. Markey says the funding would help create, maintain, and staff world-class public transportation options and attract riders. We should see this moment as an opportunity to rebuild, reimagine, and reinvigorate our public transit systems, to fix the historic injustices that are built into the physical and operational structures of public transportation. Markey notes that Boston has made three bus routes in the city free through next winter. Worcester police officers could soon get a pay boost for wearing body cameras. Tonight, the city council will consider a $1,300 annual stipend for union officers who wear the technology. Worcester City Council approved the current body camera program earlier this year. Police began wearing the cameras in February. If your nose is running and your eyes are itchy, you're not alone. Spring allergy season is back. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has more on what to expect and how to get relief. Pollen from several tree species is causing allergies to flare in Massachusetts. Dr. Camelia Hernandez is the clinical director of Brigham and Women's Allergy and Immunology Clinic. She says this year's weather has made allergies worse. There is certainly been a trend of high pollen, um, which I would say has been worse and earlier this year than has been reported in previous years, probably due to the very mild winter that we had. Hernandez recommends oral antihistamines for runny noses and nasal steroid sprays for people with multiple symptoms. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, celebrating Independent Bookstore Day. Crafts, activities, author events, and more this Saturday in Cambridge and Boston. It was a tough night for the Red Sox. The team lost their series opener against the Orioles in Baltimore. Final score was 5-4. to four. The teams play again this evening. The Celtics have a chance to clinch their first-round playoff series during tonight's matchup against the Hawks. The Seas go into tonight's game at the Garden, leading Atlanta three games to one. A win would have them heading into round two of the playoffs. In your forecast, there's a little patchy fog across the Boston area at this hour. Partly sunny today with highs in the mid-50s. We may see some scattered showers around mid-afternoon, then again in the early evening. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 40s. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds and a high back in the mid-50s. Right now, it's 47 degrees in Boston at 734. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Zoom. Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect, Zoom One. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. 
This is Morning Edition from MPR News. I'm E. Martinez at KUER in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Tucker Carlson is out at Fox News. The cable outlet announced that yesterday, saying the two had parted ways. Before rising to prime time in 2016, Carlson had been a relatively mainstream political commentator. He appeared here on NPR, among other places. Then in prime time, he regularly elevated extremist narratives and conspiracy theories. Here's NPR's Shannon Bach. Tucker Carlson has used his seat on cable's most watched primetime news show to inject a dark strain of conspiracy mongering into Republican politics. Just days before the 2020 election, does Nicole Hemmer is a history professor at Vanderbilt University who studies conservative media. Tucker Carlson has been the tentpole of Fox News. His show has been both a source of that kind of nationalist, populist conservatism that Donald Trump embodied, but it's also been a clearinghouse for conspiracies. Carlson has railed against immigration. We have a moral obligation to admit the world's poor, they tell us, even if it makes our own country poorer and dirtier and more divided. And claimed white people are under attack. White supremacy, that's the problem. This is a hoax just like the Russia hoax. Many of the false narratives Carlson has promoted are part of what's known as the Great Replacement, the racist fiction that non-white people are being brought into the U.S. to replace white voters. Thanks to to Tucker Carlson, uh, this kind of uh, dreck that you would normally only see on far-right forums and online spaces had a primetime audience on cable news every night. Melissa Ryan runs Card Strategies, which tracks disinformation and extremism online. She says Carlson delivered what many Fox News viewers wanted. That included false claims about COVID vaccines, the January 6th Capitol insurrection, and gay and transgender people. Tucker is a chameleon. He's very good at reading the room um, and figuring out where the right wing base is at um, and adapting uh, to give them as much red meat as they want. Carlson also gave a platform to controversial figures who shared his conspiratorial worldview, elevating their profiles as well. And while his most inflammatory screeds sent some big-name advertisers fleeing, Carlson also delivered ratings, the primary currency at Fox News. Nicole Hemmer. As that audience has gotten more extreme, as conservative voters and activists have moved even further to the right or have embraced conspiratorial thinking. They've embraced media that that give them that. Even as Fox News has tried to fend off right-wing upstarts like Newsmax and Rumble, it does still have the reach of a mainstream news outlet. And so when it gives time to extremist conspiracy theories like The Great Replacement, that reverberates beyond its airwaves. Angelo Carasone is president of Media Matters for America, the liberal watchdog. Tucker took something that really was relegated to the fringes. It's a white nationalist conspiracy theory. Um, and he made it not just a part of his show, but then a broader part of Fox News's culture. And then by extension, Republican politics. It really became acceptable to embrace that idea. Along with racial grievance, another Carlson staple centered on so-called global elites. His last show ended with a promotion for his latest special called Let Them Eat Bugs. In it, he claims that elites are trying to force people to replace meat with insects. Shannon Bond, NPR News. Uber and Lyft drivers say those apps promote wage discrimination. They say algorithms use drivers' personal data to shape how much they earn, resulting in unequal pay. 
Uber denies using data in this way. And Lyft says workers can reject jobs that don't pay enough. I spoke to University of California College of the Law San Francisco professor Vina Duval, who interviewed rideshare drivers about this. These firms, because they treat their workers as independent contractors, cannot tell them what to do and where to go. So instead, they use these pay mechanisms to influence their behavior. So they learn everything that they can about particular workers and then use that knowledge to shape how workers get paid. And the problem, in large part, is not just that these workers are getting different pay for the same work, but also that they don't know why they're getting paid in particular ways. Is it too much of a leap if I say that in some ways the algorithm becomes their boss? No, that's exactly how drivers talk about it. They talk about how the app is their boss. And unlike a human boss who you can kind of negotiate with, who you can withhold information from, the algorithm knows so much about these workers. They know how much a worker is willing to accept for particular rides. They know how much they try and earn on any given day. They might know other aspects about the worker such that they can really personalize how much that worker makes in order to influence their behavior in particular ways. So, Professor, how is this then any different from, say, another kind of employment setting, either in an office or a factory where there are two employees that are hired at different pay rates to essentially do the same job? In a more familiar employment setting, we still have a legal norm, and that legal norm is equal pay for equal work. And so in those contexts, there is often some logic to why people are earning more, whether it's seniority or experience or skill. And that is often transparent. And there are checks and balances. There are laws that ensure that companies check their own practices to make sure that people are earning roughly the same amounts. What's complicated about this context is that there is no logic. Instead, it might be that the person who works for a really long time and works really hard and the longest hours and has the most experience is earning the least. And we just can't know. The logic is all hidden behind black box algorithms. And do the workers have any rights to ask the tech companies why this pay is so inconsistent? Or is it because they're independent contractors, they don't have that ability? In Europe, uh, workers have recently, after litigation, won the right to have some access to what data companies are extracting from their work and to determine particular prices that none of that has been revealed yet. In the U.S., there are similar privacy laws, but none of this has been litigated yet. And attempts to get at it from regulators has largely been met with resistance. Is any of this actually illegal? It might be illegal under antitrust laws. There is the potential to say that some of this is price fixing if all of these workers are independent contractors. That is being litigated in California courts right now. But absent a finding on an antitrust violation, this isn't necessarily illegal. There's nothing that says that independent contractors have to get paid the same amount, unlike in the employment context where workers have to get a wage floor and there has to be equal pay for equal work as it pertains to protected categories of people. There's sort of nothing like that. It's a brave new world. Vina Duval is a professor at the University of California College of Law. Professor, thanks. Thank you for having me.
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. In just a few minutes at 745, a year ago, people in Flagstaff, Arizona, were racing to protect their homes from floods caused by rain that followed wildfires. Now they may face an even bigger, bigger threat as near-record snowpack in the mountains begins to melt. In your forecast, we have some spots of patchy fog this morning. It'll be partly sunny today and in the mid-50s. Around mid-afternoon, there's a chance of scattered showers. More rain possible early this evening as temperatures fall to the low 40s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and mid-50s. It's 48 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors, available at muzzinaudio.com and Gentle Giant Moving and Storage Company, offering professional, local, long-distance, office, and piano moving with 23 locations nationwide, gentlegiant.com. Canton-based Point32 Health plans to partner with Boston Medical Center. The insurance company will fund the expansion of BMC's doula program. The company says the partnership will help close racial disparities in maternal health. BMC says people don't need to be insured by Point32 Health to take advantage of the program. The Boston-based Greg Hill Foundation is partnering with Grubhub to help local restaurants. $200,000 in grant money is available to restaurants in the city. The foundation says the money could be used for marketing, wages, or updating technology. A Maine yoga retreat has been ranked the second best in the country. A report from USA Today shows Sewell House in Island Falls, Maine, ranked well for its focus on women's mental health and personalized experiences. The yoga retreat was the only one in New England to make the top 10 list. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. From BritBox with the confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The huge snowfall in the Rocky Mountains this winter is providing some relief after years of drought. That same snowfall is making people nervous because if it melts too quickly... Major flooding is a real risk in several states. Ryan Heinches of our member station KNAU reports on the situation in Flagstaff, Arizona. Kyle House walks around his property in a neighborhood that bore the brunt of several major floods last summer when seasonal rains washed down the San Francisco peaks in the wake of a major wildfire. So this was a river right here. We had whitewater streams coming out both sides through both gates. It was a nightmare. We had so much water coming in our yards. The flooding created a waist-high lake in his cul-de-sac, upending he and his neighbors' lives. They quickly mobilized to stack thousands of sandbags and dig ditches to channel the water away from their homes. Those sandbags and ditches are now providing some protection should this winter's record snow melt too fast. Across Flagstaff, more than 1,500 homes are at risk. We're planning our lives completely differently in the summer. It just provokes all kinds of anxiety. And that's widespread in the neighborhood, for sure. 
House happens to be a research geologist who studied flooding in Arizona for more than three decades. He sees his situation as representative of the much larger danger of wildfires and flooding exacerbated by climate change. In terms of being in the southwest where you really are on the edge of drought almost all the time, I feel like that we are just right at the ground zero for how bad this problem can get. Just upstream from House's neighborhood, the normally dry Schultz Creek surges with spring runoff. I'd say Schultz, even during a regular snowmelt season, is usually a trickle. With such a great snowpack this year, yeah, it's looking a lot more like a river. Ed Shank is Flagstaff's stormwater manager. He's standing on the rim of three detention basins the city built quickly last fall. They've been mostly containing this huge volume of snowmelt for now. The basins weren't designed for this, but rather to hold back massive post-wildfire flooding. This is hugely fortuitous. If we didn't have these in place, there would have been much more severe flooding impacts through this spring, especially in March when the first snow melts were coming down. Flagstaff received about double its average snowfall this season. Stacy Breckler-Nags is the city's emergency manager. We're seeing a lot of impact throughout the community just, just from the snowmelt. It's, um, it's changed, you know, since, just since last week, creating some little overflow and, and coming in pretty fast. Whether the basins will be enough to protect neighborhoods downstream all depends on the weather. If it gets hot too fast or it rains on top of the accumulated snow, there could be widespread flooding. Locals are hoping for a gradual melt. Lucinda Andriani leads the Coconino County Flood Control District, which is preparing to break ground on several large-scale flood mitigation projects. This will be the single largest set of projects the district or county have ever undertaken. On a map, Andriani points out where the wildfire heavily scorched several watersheds. Using more than $90 million in federal funding, crews will work to prevent erosion and restore those natural channels. The projects are expected to take two or more years to complete. The work that we do on forests basically advances the recovery of the watersheds by about 75 years. Andriani hopes enough work can be done in the near term to avoid a repeat of last summer when residents had to shelter in place, major highways closed, and neighborhood streets turned into raging rivers. But anxiety levels are rising as communities face the prospect of another monsoon season spent behind piles of sandbags and concrete barriers. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in just a couple minutes, actor, producer, and writer Rain Wilson talks about his new book that argues that we all need to be part of a spiritual revolution. And at 810, President Biden has released a video making his run for a second term official. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Live Nation, presenting Rafi and his Beluga grads live at the Orpheum on May 7th. Proceeds benefit the Raffi Foundation for Child Honoring. LiveNation.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, reporting in The Globe and The New York Times details a top Boston chef's alleged abusive workers. Barbara Lynch is the first chef specifically named for abuse since the public conversation started in earnest a few months ago. Will this be a first step for restaurants across the city? That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. President Joe Biden has officially announced he'll seek a second term as president of the U.S. In Sudan, the U.S. and other countries are trying to evacuate citizens amid a temporary ceasefire there. 
And documents obtained by WBUR show the MBTA is paying more out of its pension fund than it's taking in. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Mid-50s today under partly sunny skies. There's a chance of showers around mid-afternoon and again early this evening. Low 40s tonight, fog overnight, then tomorrow partly cloudy and mid-50s. It's 48 degrees in Boston at 751. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Rain Wilson is a lot of things. He's an Emmy-nominated actor. He's a podcast host and a dad and a husband and a member of the Baha'i faith. And now he is the author of a book titled Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Mr. Wilson knows the question going through many people's heads right now. Why the hell would the guy who played Dwight on The Office be writing a book about spirituality? Our colleague Rachel Martin talked with him to learn the answer. The real reason Rain Wilson wrote a book about a spiritual revolution is because he's a true optimist. He believes that poverty, climate change, racism, injustice, all of these are issues that he believes demand a spiritual solution. He's been convinced of this since he was a young man. For a time, he fell away from the Baha'i faith of his family, but when he suffered from some serious mental health problems, he found solace in his faith. But when he was in his 20s, living in New York, struggling to make it as an actor, being the God guy in that particular scene was tough. It's so not cool to be religious. <laughs> it is, and, and it's so funny because I've always identified as being a dork and a misfit and an outsider. Maybe that's why I played Dwight so effectively, apparently. But yes, you're absolutely right. I rejected anything and everything to do with religion and faith and spirituality when I was in my 20s. And well, then things just started to break down for me. And it led me back on a spiritual quest where I was like, you know, maybe I lost something by getting rid of anything and everything to do with spirituality. Maybe, maybe there's some answer there. You described talking to friends in this time about what they thought about a higher power and you were not satisfied with their answers. What were they telling you? Yeah, so the very first question that I pondered as I was on this journey was, is there a God? And I had to really ponder that very, very deeply because I didn't believe in the God that I grew up with and I didn't believe in the God that society was presenting. So I would ask my friends, hey, do you believe in God? Which is... <laughs> great way, to, Good a great conversation. Parties, Rain Wilson. <laughs> I would go to parties and be like, "Hey, do you believe in God?" And people would gulp and turn ashen Where's and the, in the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, check, please. But almost to a person, my artist friends would say, "Well, I certainly don't believe in an old man on a cloud, you know, with an agenda, scowling down at us. I believe that there's something more out there." But that wasn't enough for me. I was like, "Wait a second, so." There either is a God or there's not. It's like you wrote, being pregnant. The existence of, yeah, I'm taking the words out of your mouth. The existence of God is like being pregnant. It is or it isn't. You can't be kind of pregnant, which I get having been pregnant. You're it or you're not. But do you really not think there's a gradation? Like you're so sure that there is God? 
Oh, um, yeah, sure is not the word. Um, I know there's a God. It's not a faith thing. God is as real to me as my body is, as my rapidly decaying body. <laughs> I stand in awe of your assuredness as someone who myself is is seeking some kind of um, intention in the randomness of life. But how do you know it's not all just random? How do I know? I know that I love. I know that I love my wife. I know that I love my son. I know that I love my father who passed away a few years back. And forgive me for for tearing up on the radio. It's a terrible place to tear up on. Um, it's the best because we can't see you. Uh, my experience of love is far deeper and more profound than that. So that's the first step in knowing that there is a creative force in the universe is I know that there is love. I also know that there is beauty. I also know that there is art and there is music and all of these things that are ineffable and transcendent are footprints. They're, they're handholds on the path to finding the great mystery. You write that sacredness is a condition. If sacredness is a condition, how does that manifest for you in a daily way? There has been a profound loss of the sacred in contemporary Western civilization. Nothing is sacred anymore. And I think sacredness and holiness is part of the conversation that we need to have um, collectively. We can certainly experience it in nature. And for religious people, we can experience it in holy sites. But how can we nurture the sacred as a condition in our hearts that we can carry with us so that a conversation like we're having can be sacred. To sacralize more aspects of our life uh, is something that would greatly benefit us on a, both a personal level and on a larger level. To see sacredness in the everyday, like we were talking about, means purging yourself of cynicism, doesn't it? Which is sort of the social currency of the moment, it seems. Yeah, I um, was fortunate as an actor to study with the great acting teacher, Andre Gregory, and he would meet with the students and I had tea with him once and he said, how are you doing, Rain? And I said, you know, Andre, I'm just feeling so cynical. I'm feeling pessimistic. The world is a pile of crap and it's getting worse. And I'll never forget this experience. He grabbed my arm. I mean, even back then, he was like 80 years old. Now he's like 110. He grabbed my arm like a vice and he looked into my eyes and he said, stop it. Don't do it. Don't be cynical. If you're cynical, they win. You have to keep hope alive. And that was transformative. And I realized fostering hope and fostering joy in others is maybe our highest spiritual calling that we can do. And that is a key pillar to the spiritual revolution. 
Rain Wilson, his new book is called Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rose Art Museum with Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love, an exploration of identity and legacy. Tickets at brandeis.edu slash rose. And BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden has officially declared his run for a second term, warning against MAGA extremists and arguing that he needs to finish this job. It's Tuesday, April 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, an advice columnist's civil trial against former President Donald Trump for an alleged sexual assault in the 1990s begins today. It was a very short incident in a, the Bergdorf Goodman dressing room, and it was against my will. Also, funerals are being held today for the victims of a mass shooting at a Sweet 16 party in Alabama. Plus... When the lights go out and the stars appear, the, the theater erupts in this... Whoa. Employees at a planetarium in L.A. have unionized in part to preserve their tradition of live storytelling. Partly sunny in mid-50s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden has officially declared he's running for re-election. He released a video this morning saying he's focused on preserving Americans' personal freedoms. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election, because I know America. Biden specifically cited protecting reproductive rights and preserving the right of Americans to vote. Former President Donald Trump goes on trial in New York City today. This time, NPR's Andrea Bernstein reports he's accused in a civil case of sexual battery and defamation. Magazine columnist Eugene Carroll is suing the former president for allegedly raping her in a New York department store dressing room in the 1990s. Carroll kept quiet for years, but in 2019 wrote a book that includes a detailed account of the alleged assault. Trump denied it had happened, denied knowing Carroll, and added she was, quote, not his type. So she sued him for defamation and then in November of 2022 filed a new claim that was under New York's new law allowing adult survivors of alleged sexual battery to sue no matter how many years had passed. Trump has called the case a hoax and a con job designed to help Carol sell books. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. In Montana, police in riot gear forcibly removed and arrested protesters in the state House of Representatives yesterday. Montana Public Radio's Shaley Rager reports this comes after a transgender legislator was blocked from speaking on a bill. 
Last week, Representative Zoe Zephyr, a Democrat from Missoula, was blocked from speaking on the House floor after opposing a bill to ban gender-affirming care for transgender minors. Republican leadership said she wouldn't be recognized during debate unless she apologized for those comments. Yesterday, roughly 100 protesters filled the gallery of the State House in response to the silencing. When Zephyr was blocked again from speaking, they erupted in anger. The chanting continued, and Republican Speaker of the House Matt Regeer ordered law enforcement to clear the room. Protesters were forcibly removed, and police in riot gear arrested at least seven people. Zephyr says she stands by her original comments. For NPR News, I'm Shaley Reger in Helena. A shaky ceasefire is underway in Sudan between two warring generals, but gunfire and explosions have been heard in the capital, Khartoum. Sudanese civilians are trying to flee to safety. The World Health Organization says nearly 460 people have been killed and thousands of others wounded. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Projected pension expenses could make the T insolvent by 2038. That's according to an MBTA document obtained by WBUR. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez reports. An arbitration filing between the T and its biggest labor union reveals that the system's troubled pension fund is in worse shape than previously reported. The fund pays out more in benefits than it's taking in. On its current path, annual costs could eat up nearly a third of the T's revenue. The union says the T's hiring campaign should attract a younger workforce that can help balance the fund. Boston University finance professor Mark Williams says new hires alone won't fix the deficit. You need to reduce the excessive benefits and or you need to increase the amount that's being paid in by those employees that eventually will benefit. The pension faces a $1.4 billion funding gap that could fall on taxpayers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Local groups that focus on education say the state should stick with the controversial MCAS standardized tests. Supporters include Democrats for Education Reform Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Business Alliance for Education, and Teach for America. The state's largest teachers union recently began its own campaign against the test. As complaints of rat sightings in the city skyrocket, Boston could soon get its very own rat czar. City Council President Ed Flynn plans to introduce a proposal at its weekly meeting to create an office of pest control. This would follow in the steps of New York City, which recently appointed its own leader to tackle its rat problem. Pest control operations are currently spread among multiple departments in Boston, but Flynn wants to streamline the process. It's a public health crisis as far as I'm concerned. It's a quality of life issue. It's important that we work together, listen to each other, acknowledge that we have a significant challenge here in the city. But let's commit ourselves to solving it. Flynn says he's planning a trip to New York in the next month to see its pest control work in action. Ex-Celtics head coach Ime Udoka is reportedly heading to Houston. ESPN first reported that the Rockets have agreed on a deal for him to be the team's new head coach. Udoka was suspended and later dismissed from the Celtics for an improper workplace relationship. ESPN reports that the Rockets say they investigated the situation before offering him the role. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with From the Andes to the Caribbean, American Art from the Spanish Empire, 
free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. The Red Sox lost their first game in Baltimore last night. They fell to the Orioles 5-4. to They play again this evening. The Celtics are back at home at the Garden tonight. They'll take on the Atlanta Hawks in Game 5 of the playoff series. A win tonight would send the Seas on to the second round of the playoffs. Tip-off is at 7.30. In your forecast, partly cloudy today with temperatures rising to the mid-50s. There's a slight chance of rain this afternoon. More showers possible this evening. Temperatures tonight will fall to the low 40s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and mid to upper 50s. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston at 8.07. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include WETA, presenting the new History TV series, Iconic America, Our Symbols and Stories with David Rubenstein, airing tomorrow at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on PBS stations and streaming on the PBS app. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez at KUER in Salt Lake City, Utah. President Biden is running for re-election. He made it official this morning in an online video. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America. And we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. The president has been teasing a run for months now and working to give a clearer picture of the message he'll run on. NPR White House correspondent Scott Detrow is here. So, Scott, tell us some more about what we expect Biden to run on. Yeah, I think a big part of it will be this idea of finish the job we've been hearing from Biden since around the time of the State of the Union. That's how he ends the video that just posted this morning. Biden is making the argument that he is someone who has gotten government to work again. He's particularly focused on the Infrastructure Act and and other new laws uh, trying to bring back American manufacturing jobs, particularly computer chips. A lot of this really comes back to the same bet that Biden made in 2020, that in a hyper-politicized culture war climate, he thinks most voters actually in the end just kind of want to see government get things done. Yeah, but here's the thing. Poll after poll shows that Biden has a low approval rating, and some Democrats have told pollsters they don't want him to run for another term. So what's the president's plan to counter that? It's really worth flagging here that his numbers are low among independent voters, too, and that's the very people that that economic message is aimed at. So when you talk to Biden's campaign, two big themes keep coming up. And the first is that they continue to insist that that the more these big infrastructure projects are rolled out, the more popular they and Biden will get. And the second is that it's a choice here, not a referendum. And that gets to another major theme of the video and the message we're going to hear a lot over the next year and a half. It's very similar to that soul of America framing that was central to Biden's 2020 campaign. And you heard again in that clip, Biden is quick to highlight this morning the threats that he sees from what he constantly frames as MAGA Republicans. Dictating what healthcare decisions women can make, banning books and telling people who they can love all while making it more difficult for you to be able to vote. And the video shows images from January 6, images of Marjorie Taylor Greene, and notably images of both Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis during during that part of it. Those are the, the two highest profile possible Republican nominees next year. The Biden campaign believes this is a choice, if it's a choice between Biden and Trump, uh, which is, is likely Trumpism is too much of a turnoff for many swing voters. But, but, but I'll say this, one other big factor here that we need to address and talk about and one that's totally out of Biden's control is his age. He's 80. Many voters are worried about sending someone back to the White House who would be 86 at the end of a second term. That's going to be a big challenge for the campaign to address. One other thing, Scott, because it, it's a year, actually four years to the day of yeah. his announcement that he'd run in 2020. So does that symmetry tells, tell us anything? 
I think it does. I really think that 2020 primary and the way that so many people were skeptical of Biden's chances looms large in the president and his political team's minds. Look, I'll, I'll cop to this. I went back and looked at what I said four years ago today on Morning Edition. I sounded pretty skeptical at times. I wasn't here, would... Scott, so. <laughs> moving forward, moving forward, moving. You know, I was skeptical that he would resonate with the modern Democratic Party, that he would find a lane in a crowded field. I wasn't alone. And here we are. And I think that's all to say. Biden and his team kind of have a bit of a chip on their shoulders at times. They feel like he was counted out in the election. He's been counted out many times as president. Look at the coverage of the midterms. Look at whether or not he could get those major bills passed that are now laws. And in the end, they feel like they trust their instincts. And that's why they're going into this reelection bid feeling pretty confident. That's NPR White House correspondent Scott Detrow. Scott, thanks. Thank you. Yesterday, Fox News delivered some news about Fox News. Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have mutually agreed to part ways. That's the way the network put it anyway. Carlson's program averaged more than 3 million viewers each night. He told those viewers that woke elites were out to get them. He promoted conspiracy theories about the January 6th attack and even told white voters that immigrants were out to replace them. We are not animals. We are Americans. This is definitely not about black lives. And remember, violent cretins have burned our cities defaced our monuments. American citizen, don your obedience mask, get your shot, pay your taxes, and shut up. Tucker Carlson made it to prime time after an earlier big flameout. Bill O'Reilly lost his job amid harassment allegations in 2016. Carlson was the replacement, and Fox stood by him through years of criticism, so why let him go now? Let's ask NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. Uh, David, Fox says uh, that it and Carlson mutually parted ways. Uh, does your reporting back up that description? No, it doesn't. I've talked to three people with knowledge of what's gone on, and though the specifics have not been released, it seems it's related to the Dominion Voting Systems defamation suit that was settled just a, a week ago today, not because of the core allegations against Fox of defaming the election tech company over the question of election fraud in 2020, but because of what's called discovery, the evidence that surfaced. Tucker Carlson is the focus of a separate but related lawsuit from a former producer who alleged his uh, workplace was defined by sexism and bigotry, and it appears that exchanges captured by Fox News in, in reviewing evidence for this case that still hasn't seen the light of day fully really is related to those allegations. That is, it, it echoes those concerns raised by the former producer, Abby Grossberg. Some of that evidence has already made to light, and it's not pretty. About a minute ago, we played some of uh, Tucker Carlson. Uh, Steve also mentioned some of the things that he railed on in his show. What do you see as Carlson's legacy at Fox? You know, Carlson was not a straight down the line pro former President Trump figure, but he was sort of a vicious attacker of any critic of the former president. And having failed at shows at PBS and MSNBC and CNN, he really became a close student of the Fox viewer. And I've got to say that he provided one of the purest forms of extremism we've seen on cable news, bigotry and, and racism alleged repeatedly by what he presented, but also extreme conspiracy theories that are corrosive, I think, to the body public. You have to say it's, a, it's an extremist view that he set out night after night. Fox News says it's going to have different people rotate into that 8 p.m. slot, at least for now. But is there anyone in the pipeline for them that could replace Tucker Carlson? Well, let me say this with the caveat that Carlson has a distinctive role in conservatism and even in the Republican Party, seen potentially not only as a kingmaker, but even had been touted as a possible candidate himself for the highest office. But Carlson himself showed and others have shown that they can step into slots before. I think Jesse Waters, less intellectually, can serve up a lot of the same red meat, strike the same tones and appeal to viewers. 
An hour after the announcement on Carlson, Don Lemon was let go from CNN. What do you think these two departures mean about maybe how cable news may try to reinvent itself somehow? Both networks are asserting, I think, that the channel itself and Fox and CNN are more important that they're stars and that they feel they can retain viewers no matter who they put in those seats. NPR's David Falkenflik, thanks a lot. You bet. Week and a half ago, a mass shooting at a Sweet 16 birthday party killed four young people and wounded 32 others, mostly teens. Funerals for the victims continue in Dadeville, Alabama. The second was held yesterday, and Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett was in Dadeville. At school, Phil Stavius Dowdle made an impact. Friends and teachers say the 18-year-old always had a smile and a wave. He was voted Mr. Dadeville High School, and they lined up on the sidelines to see him play football and run track, like in this video from his Twitter feed. Yesterday, flags flew at half-mast at the high school, and the community lined up again, dressed in school colors, black and gold, for Dowdle's funeral. He was a very, very nice young man. Across the street from the school, Sheila Hill has gathered with other women for support. Her son was at that birthday party, which was held for Dowdle's sister. Her son wasn't hurt and hid with others until the shooting ended. Hill says he's different now and doesn't want to be away from his parents. He usually don't ride with us anywhere because he's 16, but since this happened, when me and his dad leave the house, he's like, I'm going. So he says he's okay, but I, I'm not sure. Six suspects were arrested, many close in age to the victims. Police have not released a motive, a timeline, or the types of weapons used. Annette Allen, Dowdle's grandmother, believes guns are involved in too many shootings like this. She made this plea in the hours after the tragedy. Put the guns down, stop being violent, and get along with each other, and put God first from foremost. That's what they need to do, learn about God, and they would know not to be picking up guns and shooting, shooting and killing. Alabama's Black Legislative Caucus would like to put more restrictions on who's able to own guns. In the days following the shooting, State Senator Marika Coleman held a press conference in front of a funeral home near Dadeville. Coleman called for more red flag laws, requiring dangerous individuals to surrender their firearms. Our communities are hurting. Our young people are dying. And they are not looking for speeches or thoughts and prayers. They are looking for action to go along with those thoughts and prayers. But Coleman and others face an uphill battle in a state where gun ownership is nearly 50 percent, according to a recent study by the Violence Policy Center. The study also ranked Alabama fifth in the nation for gun deaths. In January of this year, a law pushed by gun rights activists, which they call constitutional carry, went into effect in Alabama. It allows anyone 19 years or older to carry a gun without a permit. When Republican Governor Kay Ivey signed it into law, she said, unlike states who are doing everything in their power to make it harder for law-abiding citizens, Alabama is reaffirming our commitment to defending our Second Amendment rights. Regardless of who's able to carry a gun in the state, law enforcement officer Sergeant Jeremy Burkett made one thing clear in a press conference in Dadeville last week. This is Alabama. And when you pull out a gun and you start shooting people, we're going to put you in jail. More information about the shooting is expected to be released today. 
as many of the suspects are scheduled to appear at a court hearing. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Dadeville, Alabama. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in just a couple minutes on Morning Edition, workers at a planetarium in L.A. draw large crowds for their live storytelling. Now they've unionized in part to preserve that longstanding tradition. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And Museum of Science, there's always something new. Coming soon, the latest traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games. Prepare to be amazed. MOS.org. Is social media causing a decline in teenage mental health? Smartphones were used by the majority of Americans around 2012, and that's the same time loneliness increases. That's very suspicious. Researchers are now finding clearer links between social media use and anxiety and depression. I'm Elsa Chang. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Partly sunny with a high near 55 today. There's a chance of scattered showers around about 2 p.m. More showers possible in the early evening, then mostly cloudy with a low around 40. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high of 54. Right now it's 49 degrees in Boston at 820. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from HintWater.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Martinez. The union representing Broadway actors added some new card-carrying members this week. They're a group of performers who are not themselves stars, but who tell stories about them. NPR's Andrea Shu shares her story. If you grew up in Los Angeles, you likely had a school field trip to the planetarium at Griffith Observatory. Michael Faulkner, a Shakespeare actor, has an unusual job here. He's part of a small core of people who tell stories about the history of the universe, unraveling the mysteries of the night sky. He's been doing these shows for years, and still he finds it magical to walk out into the auditorium to the soundtrack. When the lights go out and the stars appear, 
the, the theater erupts in this, whoa. There are 12 lecturers like Faulkner at the planetarium. They've been talking about unionizing since 2019, hoping for a raise and a voice. But in the pandemic, things got more urgent. There was just a whole lot of uncertainty about what the future held. The whole observatory was closed for more than a year. As they looked toward reopening, Faulkner says he feared the live storytelling might not return. Their employer, the city of LA, was in financial straits due to the pandemic. And other famous planetariums in Chicago and New York City had long been using recordings. When Faulkner saw Journey to the Stars at the Smithsonian here in Washington, D.C., it was narrated by Whoopi Goldberg. No offense to, I love Whoopi Goldberg, but she wasn't in the room with me. It was her recorded voice. And it's just not the same. To his relief, when the planetarium reopened, the lecturers were brought back. Faulkner says that was thanks to the observatory's long-serving director. But he may retire soon. And there are other threats. I mean, with the advent of AI, I've even now seen videos that aren't narrated by an actual human being. <laughs> so. Al Vincent Jr., the executive director of Actors' Equity Association, says the union has been hearing from lots of different performers since the pandemic who all want the same thing, more protections on the job. You know, folks are just like, wait a minute, you know, I matter and I want better. Last summer, all 12 planetarium lecturers signed union authorization cards and asked the city of L.A. for voluntary recognition. It was not a contentious process, but it has taken many months. This week, the Los Angeles Employee Relations Board finally certified the union. While there's no guarantee that their jobs will always be there, Faulkner says having a union to make the case for live storytelling will make a difference. It's a dying art. <laughs> and... Having a, a union contract with the city will codify it as something of value. Something they can now collectively fight for. Andrea Shu, NPR News. Pharmaceutical companies keep raising prices. The costs are hitting patients, sometimes forcing them to pay thousands of dollars for medications. The state of Maryland wants to keep drugs affordable, and WYPR reporter Scott Massioni has more. Larry Zarzecki has Parkinson's disease, and the out-of-pocket costs for his drugs over the last three years reached about $100,000. I totally went through an IRA that I had, and I had to sell my house. Zarzecki is one of the 25% of Americans who have trouble affording prescription drugs due to high out-of-pocket costs. It's estimated that Americans spend an average of $1,300 a year on prescription drugs, but some medications can cost tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. In 2019, Maryland became the first state to legislate a prescription drug affordability board in an attempt to rein in prices, and now the board is preparing to undertake its work in earnest. It's now going through a public comment period to solidify the way it will review drugs. Rachel Sachs is a professor of health law at Washington University in St. Louis. The idea is for states to think about what a fair price would be that can increase access to these drugs for patients within the state. The Maryland legislature gave the board the authority to set upper price limits, a solid monetary top line that ensures in the state will not pay more than for a specific drug. 
Maryland's Drug Affordability Board will conduct cost reviews of drugs that seem too expensive. For example, generic drugs that increased in price by 200% over the last year, generic drugs that cost more than $100 a month, or brand name drugs that launched at $30,000 or more a year. During the review, the board will look at 10 factors like available discounts, alternatives to the drug, and cost to health plans. Andrew York's the executive director of Maryland's Drug Affordability Board. And then there's the ultimate determination of after a drug undergoes a cost review, they make the determination of if it causes an affordability challenge or not. Jane Horvath, a health policy analyst at the Commonwealth Fund, says negotiations are common in medicine. Nobody pays what they are charged. Health insurers establish payment rates for what they will pay a hospital for a certain procedure or certain illness. Insurers will set rates for what they'll reimburse pharmacies for, for generic drugs, for instance. A prescription drug affordability board builds on those models that already exist at the state level. Other states are now catching on. Six states, including Colorado and Oregon, now have their own boards, but have still yet to perform cost reviews. However, not everyone thinks the boards will help patients. Priscilla Vanderveer is the vice president of public affairs at Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. Anytime that a board of government officials make unilateral decisions about people's health care. It can create a situation where you have people making choices and coming between the decisions between a doctor and a patient. For now, Larry Zarzecki, who has Parkinson's disease, says he's taking advantage of the new drug rebates and coupons that companies are offering to make ends meet. It began a really positive change in the way prescriptions are being looked at. It's allowed me to afford to buy my two grandsons Christmas presents this year. He says that's a big increase in his quality of life. It was the first time since I can remember that I've been able to really enjoy Christmas with him. Zarzecki says he hopes the Affordability Board will provide better drug pricing for all Marylanders who are struggling with high medication costs. Maryland's Prescription Board is planning on conducting its first cost reviews this fall. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni. This is NPR News. Coming up in five minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition, a journalist's civil suit begins today against former President Donald Trump for an alleged sexual assault in a Manhattan department store dressing room in the 1990s. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. And Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is officially running for a second term. 
NPR's Franco Ordonez says Biden's 2024 re-election campaign released a three-minute video this morning announcing his intentions. President Biden made his long-anticipated announcement in a three-minute video casting his decision to run again as a fight for personal freedoms. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America, and we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. The announcement comes four years to the day from the launch of his 2020 campaign. In his video, Biden links images from the January 6th riots at the U.S. Capitol with protests over the Supreme Court decision overturning abortion rights. And he accuses far-right Republicans of trying to dictate health care decisions and making it harder to vote. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. Polls have shown Americans remain concerned about Biden's handling of the U.S. economy and his age. At 80 years old, Biden is the oldest president in U.S. history. He would be 86 at the end of a second term. DuPont is being ordered to pay $16 million as a result of a poisonous gas leak at a plant in Texas. That was nearly a decade ago. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey says efforts must be taken to revamp the protection of national security information. His comments follow this month's arrest of Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira. Teixeira is charged with leaking classified documents online. Markey says it's very concerning it took so long for anyone to notice the leaks. It is something that clearly is going to call for a tearing down of the system that we have right now and putting something in place that does work in order to safeguard the most important national security information which we have. Teixeira is scheduled for a hearing Thursday to determine if he can be released on bail before his trial. It's National Parks Week, and the director of the National Parks System is in Massachusetts to celebrate. This is the first time Chuck Sams is coming to the state in that role. He'll visit Minuteman National Park, the USS Constitution, and make a stop at the Boston Harbor Islands. Sams says grant money is being earmarked to protect the islands from climate change. It's mostly looking at where the seawalls are and how the rising tides and the waters have, are affecting uh, how we're protecting both flora and fauna, what we can do differently in managing those spaces to have barriers in place so that the, these places will be protected for future generations. Director Sam says there's been a 20 percent increase in people visiting national parks over the past few years. More than 2,000 teenagers in Boston have already registered for this year's summer jobs program. The city hopes to place 7,000 young people in jobs with nonprofits, community-based organizations, and city agencies. Last summer, about 4,500 young people got jobs through the program. Mayor Michelle Wu says the work can be truly life-changing. We want to set our young people up to be on that virtuous cycle of mentors opening doors that open more doors that create opportunity that build a resume. Boston residents between the ages of 14 and 18 can apply through the city's website. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater with How High the Moon, the music of Ella Fitzgerald, a concert tribute to the First Lady of Song starting May 3rd. Tickets at MRT.org. 
In sports, the Red Sox are coming off a loss in Baltimore last night. The team lost their series opener against the Orioles by just one run. The final score was 5-4. to four. The teams play again this evening. A win tonight for the Celtics would send the team into the second round of the NBA playoffs. They go into tonight's game at TD Garden up three games to one against the Atlanta Hawks. There's a little patchy fog across the Boston area at this hour, partly sunny today with highs in the mid-50s. We may see some scattered showers around mid-afternoon, then again in the early evening. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 40s. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds and a high back in the mid-50s. It's 50 degrees in Boston. At 834, you're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez at KUER in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today, like so many days, a case involving Donald Trump is in court. This time, it's a civil trial in New York City. Magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll accuses Trump of sexual assault. If found liable, the former president could be forced to pay tens of millions of dollars. NPR's Andrea Bernstein joins us now for a preview. Andrea, what is Donald Trump accused of here? Trump is being sued for civil battery and defamation for allegedly raping Eugene Carroll in the dressing room of an apartment store in Manhattan in the 1990s. Carol, who wrote an immensely popular advice column at the time called Ask E. Jean, was part of this world of celebrities in New York City at the time. And as Carol tells it, the two ran into each other outside Bergdorf Goodman's on Fifth Avenue, where Trump said, hey, you're the advice lady. And she said, hey, you're the real estate mogul. And then, according to Carol, he said he needed advice on buying a present, and she thought it was funny. Here's Carol from a 2019 interview with NPR. He had grabbed up from the counter a little see-through bodysuit, told me to go try it on. And I said, no, you go try it on. He said, no, it looks like it fits you. I said, no, it goes with your eyes. The whole thing, I'm just running a comedy script in my head because it's very funny. And then I made a terrible mistake. So Carol says she went with Trump into the dressing room where she says he forced himself on her. Trump has denied the whole thing. Now, if this happened in the 1990s, why is it going to trial now? Carol did not speak out until decades later in 2019 when she published a book and an excerpt ran in New York magazine. At the time, Trump called her a liar and added, quote, she's not my type. So Carol sued him for defamation. But that's not the case that's going to trial today. The case that is going to trial is a new claim filed in November under a brand new law in New York that allows adult survivors of alleged sexual assault to sue after many years have passed. Carol is also suing for defamation based on a social media post from the fall when Trump called her allegations, quote, a complete con job and insulted her appearance. Who's testifying in this? Most notably, Carol herself and two other women who say they were sexually assaulted by Trump in a similar manner, one on an airplane and one at his Mar-a-Lago resort. 
Lawyers for Carol are expected to play a portion of the infamous Access Hollywood tape, where Trump told a television host that he liked to grab women by the genitals, and that, quote, when you're a star, they let you do it. Trump's defenders have called that locker room talk. Since Trump's 2016 campaign, when he was elected, a number of women have accused him of sexual assault, but this is the first to go to trial, where these allegations can be aired and tested in a court of law. Will he be there? Will Trump be there or even testify? He's entitled to, but his lawyers haven't said yet. They're reserving the right for him to testify. Whatever happens, jurors will likely hear from him because there's a taped deposition in the case. Okay, and how long is the trial expected to last? The judge is renowned for running a tight ship. All of the evidence could be in by the end of next week, and it may not be long before we get a verdict in this civil case. All right, NPR's Andrew Bernstein, thanks a lot. Thank you. In the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, fighting has killed thousands of soldiers on both sides. Loved ones of fallen Ukrainians say they're hoping that a spring counteroffensive will push out the Russians. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports. Six months ago, 39-year-old Alexander Onishenka died defending Bakhmut. His mother, Tamara Onishenka, often visits his grave at one of three cemeteries in Kyiv that allows military burials. This past Sunday, on an Orthodox Christian Day of Remembrance, when Ukrainians honor the dead with flowers and food, she brought him a Tupperware of his favorite, cabbage dumplings. We steam the dumplings just the way he likes them, though we are the ones eating. I believe he is able to enjoy it. She does not notice she's speaking about him in the present tense until she shows me his photo. I can see that he's your son. He has the same nice smile and eyes. Mav. Mav had the same smile, she says, and she hides her face. She's crying. We really, really want to believe that all of those who have died have not died in vain. Because if there is no victory, then all of those people who are buried here died for no reason. Not far away. A tall, bearded soldier named Victor Chapelia is wiping away his own tears as he talks to the grave of his friend and fellow soldier, Vasily. He lights a cigarette and sticks it in the sand on the grave, as if offering it to Vasily to smoke. He also fills up a small paper cup with scotch and sets it next to the cigarette. It's my brother. By, not by blood, but by spirit. By spirit. Were you together in the battalion? Yep. Yeah. Chapelia broke his back and shattered his leg, fighting in Bakhmut, and he's still recovering in Kiev. He's from a village in Ukraine's east, in the Donetsk region, which Russian proxies took over in 2014. He says he's tired of Russian propagandists calling him and other Ukrainian soldiers Nazis. So they think that we are total nationalists, totally fascist. Ironic. Because, he says. I'm Russian-speaking Jewish from Donetsk. He says he does not regret fighting in Bakhmut, even though it is clearly exhausting his fellow soldiers and the country in general. A few miles away in central Kyiv, Mikhailo Podolyak, an advisor to President Volodymyr Zelensky's office, says Ukraine's nine-month defense of Bakhmut has also cost the Russians dearly. 
Defending Bakhmut proves what Ukraine is about, that it will defend every inch of its land. And it's not just to prove this to ourselves, we also want to show our Western partners that this is who we are and why we will stand to the end. Back at the cemetery, musician Serhi Sukamlin is playing a stringed instrument called the bandura to honor the dead. He says he's lost several friends in Bakhmut. And even though Russia's invasion has united most Ukrainians, he worries a long war could wear down that resolve. There are a lot of people who think, who are we without Russia? They are quiet now, but they could start raising their hats again. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. Many of your favorite people at NPR are in the office these days. Our director, Chad Campbell, our editor, Kelly Dickens, and our technical director, Zach Coleman, are all on the other side of the glass for me here in Studio 31. We also do some work at home. Some of our key people even have moved to other states. So what now? What would it take for people who work remotely, who like it, to come back? This afternoon, and all things considered, J.P. Morgan Chase hopes to lure employees back to the office with a new multi-billion dollar building. Listen in your car or on your run to NPR News. Coming up at 8.45 on WBOR's Morning Edition, we hear from constituents of California Senator Dianne Feinstein as she faces increasing calls to resign. In your forecast, it'll be partly sunny today and in the mid-50s around mid-afternoon, there's a chance of scattered showers. More rain possible early this evening as temperatures fall to the low 40s. Tomorrow, partly sunny in mid-50s. It's 51 degrees in Boston at 8.43. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Grogan & Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers, whose spring auction weekend is May 6th and 7th. Learn more at groganco.com. Community Health Link in Worcester plans to lay off at least 80 people. The layoffs come after a surprise inspection from the Massachusetts Bureau of Substance Addiction Services led to the suspension of multiple substance abuse programs. The company's president is also stepping down. A former Best Western Hotel in Brighton will be auctioned off this week. The auction comes after a previous proposed development was foreclosed on. City officials tell the Boston Business Journal the site is worth nearly $11 million. A new food hall is set to open at Union Station in Providence next spring. Plans for the hall were announced in 2021 and approved last year. It'll include seating for 300 people and an outdoor plaza. The developer of the hall tells the Boston Globe construction will start this summer. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at mott.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. For decades, 89-year-old Dianne Feinstein has been one of the most popular politicians in California. Now she's facing calls to resign after missing key Senate votes. Scott Schaefer of member station KQED asked California voters about her absence. At a children's playground in San Francisco's Mission District, music teacher Thomas Danish takes a break from eating a sandwich to consider Dianne Feinstein's career. You know, she's been in the game forever. You have to respect the woman for what she's done. And what about people who are saying, you know what, you need to resign because you can't go back there and vote right now? Uh, I think that decision's up to her and, and her people and her team. On 24th Street in the heart of the city's Latin cultural district, Edith Reyes notes the high stakes in Washington right now. She's voted for Feinstein before and thinks she's done an adequate job, but... There's a time for a change and this may be it for Diane Feinstein to step down and allow somebody else to take her place. Down the street, Andre Barnes says he's lived in the city a long time, but it's been years since he's even thought about Diane Feinstein. Like when Willie Brown was like a state legislator, you kind of understood what he was doing. He raised money, he got, he got things done. Feinstein, I just don't have a clue. She should go enjoy her life. She's old. Barnes likes Oakland Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who could fit the bill if Governor Gavin Newsom fulfills his pledge to name a black woman to the seat. But if you're a Republican in deep blue California, like Gloria Ludke of La Quinta near Palm Springs, the problem is much bigger than Feinstein's age. The politics that they have in California suck. While Feinstein fell out of favor with many progressive Democrats for being too moderate, to Ludke, she's too liberal. I really don't uh, think much of her. She doesn't do her job. She's just one-sided. Republican Jeff Lau says he thinks there are good reasons for Feinstein to retire. Harder to make decision when, you know, getting older and it's good to move on to another position. <laughs> on a recent morning at the Rossmore Retirement Community in Walnut Creek, east of Oakland, seniors were playing a vigorous game of pickleball. Inside a nearby clubhouse, three members of the Rossmore Democratic Club mulled over the Feinstein dilemma. At 91, Joyce Brock is older than Feinstein, but she rejects the idea that Feinstein is being treated unfairly or that there's a double standard for older women. I don't think this has to do with gender. Because of my age, I know myself that I'm not as good as I was when I was 85. Her friend Alice Claire King, a relatively young 79, notes that the nearly 40 million people in California need a reliable voice in Washington. As the biggest state in the country, uh, with only two senators, we need her vote. We need a senator who's at full speed and can give his or her all. It's a balance between the agility of youth and the experience of age. That's Amal Molik. Calling on his Indian heritage, he has a nuanced take on Feinstein's age. In the Asian culture, age is regarded as a very <laughs> great value. Molik seems resigned to the fact that ultimately Feinstein may have to step down, giving Governor Newsom an opportunity to name the next senator. But let us be clear on this. There'll be no voice like Dianne Feinstein. Whoever he appoints will have very large shoes to fill. Meanwhile, Feinstein's staff says she'll be back in Washington once her health allows her to travel. For NPR News, I'm Scott Schaefer in San Francisco. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. 
This is 90.9 WBOR. Coming up in the next few minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at new quarterly results coming in from airlines. So far, they seem to show that despite strong consumer demand, the companies are still reporting losses. It's 849. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. President Joe Biden has officially declared that he's running for re-election, setting up a possible rematch with former President Donald Trump. In Sudan, there are multiple reports of gunfire in the country's capital city of Khartoum, despite a ceasefire brokered by the U.S. And here in Massachusetts, WBUR has obtained documents that show the MBTA pension fund faces a more than $1 billion shortfall. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Live Nation, presenting Rafi and his Beluga grads. Live at the Orpheum on May 7th, proceeds benefit the Rafi Foundation for Child Honoring. LiveNation.com. Mid-50s today under partly sunny skies. There's a chance of showers around mid-afternoon and again early this evening. Low 40s tonight, fog overnight. Then tomorrow, partly cloudy and mid-50s. It's 52 degrees in Boston at 851. AI might be revolutionizing the economy, but is it revolutionizing profits? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by SoFi. SoFi Insights helps members track all of their money all in one place with credit score monitoring, spending breakdowns, and financial insights. Learn more at SoFi.com. Get your money right. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore in for David Brancaccio. The biggest tech companies on the planet will be opening up their books to investors this week. Google's parent company Alphabet and Microsoft kick things off today with their quarterly looks at how much they spent and how much they made. Expect to hear a lot about artificial intelligence. Investors want to know when AI might start showing up in the profit lines of the tech giants. Marketplace's Lily Jamali reports. The race to dominate AI will see big tech companies investing between 15 and $20 billion this year, says Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities. It's going to be a big focus of earnings because every tech stalwart from Google to Amazon to Apple and others is going after what I view as an $800 billion opportunity. 
But Ives says tech companies might not see much reward until later this year. Microsoft's partnership with OpenAI's ChatGPT has been getting most of the headlines lately, but Google's Bard is a serious competitor, says Adam Jackson, co-founder of the tech talent network Braintrust. He's noticed a lot of industries are looking to use AI to cut costs as the economy softens. Every manager in every public company is asking themselves, how do I use OpenAI, ChatGPT, whatever, to save money in this coming quarter? And that could offer big tech the AI payoff they've been looking for. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. It's not just the tech companies filing earnings reports this week. More than a third of the S&P 500 is reporting. This should reveal a lot about how inflation, bank turmoil, and layoffs in certain industries are affecting the economy. Another factor in the mix, the strength of the U.S. dollar. Marketplace's Justin Ho has more. Up until around last September, the dollar's value had been rising. A lot of investors were buying U.S. government bonds thanks to the Federal Reserve's rate hikes. And more demand for U.S. bonds means more demand for U.S. dollars. Thing is, other central banks have been raising rates too. And now the Federal Reserve is slowing down its rate hikes. As a result, the dollar's value has been falling in the time since. A weaker U.S. dollar makes American products more competitive overseas. But it also makes it more expensive for companies to invest in, say, overseas manufacturing. Companies have to effectively pay more for machinery and labor. And for anyone in the U.S. that imports products, a weak dollar doesn't go as far. That means importers will likely have to raise prices to maintain the same kind of profits they were making when the dollar's value was high. I'm Justin Howe for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down two tenths of a percent. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are down two in the two to four tenths percent range with the Dow future down 77 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is at 3.434%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance, providing direct car insurance rates side-by-side -side with other insurance carriers. Customers can see rates and find an option that works for their needs. Now that's Progressive. Learn more at Progressive.com. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers comprehensive cybersecurity protection while automating cyber defense to stop threats so organizations can thrive. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. Airlines are losing money, but they say travel demand is strong and this summer's travel season should be busy. That's at least what we've heard so far from JetBlue, Delta, and United in their quarterly results. We'll hear from American and Southwest later this week. For more, I am joined by Samuel Engel, Senior Vice President at ICF. Samuel, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. So firstly, why are these major airlines losing money? What's really going on is that costs are up and the lucrative business travelers are not all back. The airlines have just agreed to a 34% pay increase for pilots led by Delta. So we have pilot costs going up and we also have fuel costs. They're still more than 50% higher than they were before the pandemic. Despite all that, Delta and United are both saying people are still willing to spend on flying. Do you agree that we're all gonna be flying a bunch more this summer? It's important to talk about who's going to be flying more this summer. It's been pretty clear since early in the pandemic that people still want to go see grandma and they still want to go on vacation. And so the leisure demand, which had fallen off at the beginning of the pandemic, has fully recovered. What is not there is the same travel patterns for business travelers. 
How important are business travelers to the airlines? It's the business travelers who buy those tickets just a few days before departure and easily pay twice as much as the leisure travelers. And what we're seeing is that while business travel grew through 2022, the pace of that growth has tapered off in 2023. Airfare prices, they're higher than they were before the pandemic. Do you think that's going to uh, subside or is that the new normal? You have to think about that as a new balance between business and leisure. So the way I think about it is that for decades, leisure passengers have enjoyed an implicit subsidy from business. With the business traffic and the business value down, there is less of that subsidy to go around. And so we have seen the airlines learning to get leisure passengers to pay more. That's not going away. We have been predicting for some time that in the face of those higher fares, leisure demand would fall off. And we haven't seen it yet, but we certainly can expect it from the laws of supply and demand. I ask this question as someone who did not have a single on-time flight last summer and who spent at least one night on a cot. Are the airlines going to be able to handle the leisure travel of this summer? Because just to put it bluntly, travel was hell last summer. On the peak travel days and when there are extreme weather events, which we see more often, the system is at a cracking point and it simply has less give and less resilience for recovery than it used to. And that, I think, spells a continued challenge for passengers and the airlines this summer. Samuel Engel is Senior Vice President at the Consultancy ICF. Samuel, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Sabri. Our producers are James Graham, Ollie Dalbertansen, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen-Morby. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts Catering. Full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings. Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. I'm WBUR Statehouse reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.